Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Nevjan Gungor. Did I say it right? I've been saying your name for like 10 years now. <laughs> it's Nevjan. I always say Nevjan, but it's Nevjan. Yeah, it's Nevjan, so C is a G. She is the chief investment officer, the CIO of the, I hope you'll correct my pronunciation, Tong Group of... Yeah, that's pretty good, yeah. Got it right? Okay. And for the listeners, here's the interesting part of Myanmar, which is is one of the biggest... I believe it's one of the biggest companies in Myanmar. Let me let me go to their page. It says, Shwetong is one of the leading corporations in Myanmar. We have a diversified portfolio of business interests with a focus on six core sectors, building materials, distribution, engineering, and construction, infrastructure investments, lifestyle, and real estate. This sounds like a very impressive company, although in a, a place that we're about to hear the inside story of, of a coup that happened, I guess, five months ago. Now, you and I met in business school at Columbia, I guess it was a couple of years after I'd graduated and we met through mutual friends. And was that about 10 years ago? Not quite. It must, might have been like eight to 10 years. And we've been, we've been friends all this time, but we were out of touch for a bit. And some time ago, not quite a year ago, you contacted me because you'd been listening to this podcast and you said, this is very interesting. And a lot of people tell me that it's interesting and they themselves are not doing very much them, themselves. You, on the other hand, have made sustainability part of your life. And as we spoke more, I told you about how other people are starting podcast branches of this sustainable life and you decided to do that. And so you are the about to be the newest member of the This Sustainable Life podcast host family. So I wanted to do an episode with you for a couple things. One, because you are a leader, you're CIO of, of a major corporation. You lived through a coup. That's very interesting. So I want to talk about that after we hear about you. And then you're doing the sustainable life. So I, I hope we'll get the time to walk you through to pick up a commitment. Sounds good. Let's start with you. How did you become a CIO and what does a CIO do? And, and again, chief investment officer, not chief information officer. Where are you from? Where, and how'd you go to business school? And, and how'd you get to CIO? You look young for C-suite officer. Well, I'm relatively young, but not too young. So it's not that unusual to have uh, people of my age um, to be in this position. So it's it means that you've been progressing through your career until this age uh, without a gap. Um, it is possible, but it is still relatively quick. How did I become a CIO? It's, it hasn't been a very straightforward path, to be honest. I'm originally from Turkey, so I ended up in Myanmar through like not very, I guess, like obvious career decisions. But I never regretted, really. I've always wanted to make a positive impact with my career. Um, although when I started, so I was working for investment banks or commercial banks. So there was always a drive for me to be more on the impact space and use the impact of financial sector as well as private sector's capability and um, implementation capacity to make a difference, really. After my First few years of my career in the investment banks and commercial banks, I joined the World Bank Group. And then I I moved to different places with the World Bank in my four or five year uh, with the World Bank Group, a private sector arm of the World Bank. And then just by coincidence, a friend of mine was doing business in Myanmar at that point. And during one of our chats, I told him I wanted to move to private sector to a developer and do the work that is similar to what I'm doing right now, but within a private sector developer, I think I can make a big difference. This capability, this skill set is really relevant and I want to be near the action. And then it just turns out that my friend was doing business in Myanmar 
and he was talking to an executive uh, from a company uh, within Myanmar the day before. So we, we had this chat in Hong Kong and then he introduced us and I ended up in Myanmar. And that was the like really golden days of Myanmar from a development perspective. The country was just opening up after decades of uh, military rule. Uh, they were going through a series of reforms. It was a semi-civilian government, and shortly after... What year is this, by the way, when you started? Uh, this is 2015, I believe. Okay, so 2015 to the beginning of 2021. Yeah. So uh, when I first came to me, it must have been 2014, and then I moved here 2015, early 2015. So... That was 2015. We had the first elections uh, for over a few decades in Myanmar. And uh, the civilian um, opposition party came to power and they have been continuing the uh, reforms, opening up economic and political, I guess, reforms since then. So country was, I mean, it wasn't, not everything was perfect, but it was on a path um, that was very promising. And it was a very exciting, exciting place to be in. I can't help but interrupt here because you said you wanted to be where the action is and knowing what, now that we know what was to come and, and you said it was very exciting. And I'm thinking, this is like very portentous. So sorry to interrupt, but knowing <laughs> okay. what's to come, it's hard not to think about yeah, it. So I, I guess I got what I wanted. Action it is. Yeah, I mean, it's been a really exciting few years. It's really the people in Myanmar, they... Are very hardworking, and then they had been in uh, like under sanctions for decades. The economy was under several hardships, and poverty was like extremely high. But even under those conditions, people were like very optimistic, very kind, very hardworking. And this opening up process really uh, made a big difference in the lives of people. And I find this very satisfying as part of my work, like being able to contribute to this, building a team of like young Myanmar people, contributing to their career progress, contributing to building this future leadership capability of the company, as well as the country. So it was like really very rewarding and very exciting. Yeah. So until recently, everything was going on a um, fairly positive path. And I guess within that period, um, so I, I can give a few examples. So we have the government was going through several reforms, so including reforms on environmental and social governance, so how the resources are being managed, so what, what kind of responsibilities they expect from businesses and how businesses are supposed to conduct themselves. So there was a very active civil engagement as well as government participation um, in those aspects. So things were actually uh, going fairly positive. So I would say it was almost ahead of like a lot of developed markets. So in terms of the depth of conversations that uh, we were having, like in terms of governance space, like environment and social governance, social responsibility, responsible business conduct. And I think overall, I find all this progress uh, very, very, very rewarding. When I think of Southeast Asian nations with these big conglomerates, I think that, do I read right that Chuetong would have its hands in a lot of, I mean, it would work very closely with government and, and it would be all over. And that means if you're chief investment officer, you're part of the strategy of what areas, I mean, what places get built up and what areas get investment. And you're playing a strategic role almost at the national level, maybe at the national level. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And then we work very closely with 
government. So, of course, government has its own system and structure, uh, but they always consult with the private sector because private sector is the one who has the execution capability. So we always gave comments. Uh, and my background with the World Bank Group also contributed a lot because I can see how different pieces can come together. And of course, I understand the private sector limitations as well as capabilities. Uh, so we have, I mean, I personally have been uh, very much involved in the discussions on several aspects and the reforms in terms of institutional and regulatory frameworks. And yeah, we have been part of like several firsts in the country, which was very exciting. Well, can you share a story of a first? Well, several. So, for example, we have done the first um, extensive biodiversity study like for a manufacturing plant. And it turns out that we had, we discovered the new species wow. um, in, the, yeah, in the area that we were supposed to build a plant. So we had to build kind of the plant around it and we had to come up with a comprehensive biodiversity study, which was like, I think that was the first in Myanmar for sure. And even in Southeast Asia that was regarded as one of the like the best practices, case studies. So previously, biodiversity wasn't something that was really high on the agenda for the development perspective. So this was like coming into place. Uh, other than that, uh, we had we were part of the first sustainability reporting and also being part of uh, the first governance board governance structure uh, reforms through um, an entity funded by some of the development finance institutions. Uh, so we were pushing the agenda on governance structure for companies having proper decision making. So not only from commercial point of view, but also engaging like other stakeholders and having a decision making that is more robust, that incorporates several risk factors, including environment and social. So I'm curious about your role. Is it, I'm guessing that maybe the CEO or someone trusts you with deciding is this worth doing? I, I guess you do a lot of financial analysis, but then a lot of leadership as well in terms of strategy of what's it. I'm curious, like, what does a CIO do? Yeah, the investment, the financial aspect is my uh, main focus, uh, but the finance doesn't happen in isolation. So investment, so I usually look at the project from the beginning from the concept stage uh, to like until construction. And when it comes to construction phase, I um, help build the team uh, who can oversee the construction, the technical experts uh, who will oversee the construction. And then um, later uh, when it becomes operational, operational team takes over. Uh, So until it gets to that stage, I'm basically responsible for overseeing all aspects of the projects. But of course, my background is in finance and investment. uh, So that was my main focus. The CEO of the uh, company I work for is one of the visionary leaders of the country, I would say. So he's um, a very progressive, very forward-thinking individual. So we work as a team, really. Of course, he trusts me and I trust his judgment. So I complement his skills in like more technical, more investment, like more international governance aspects, but he has the um, hands-on knowledge on how how to get things done on the ground and how to manage his business. So it was very complimentary and it still is um, very complimentary. And I think it's been a very productive partnership. You're now, oh, I should mention this earlier. You're now in Bangkok. Yes. Is he in Bangkok too or is he in uh, Myanmar? No, he is um, in Myanmar. Are you in? Yes. Myanmar, yes. How do you say that? Myanmarian? Yeah, they call it Myanmar, not Myanmarian. So Myanmar person. 
like okay. like Turkish Myanmar. Uh-huh. Now I can't help but get to the events of January and, and subsequently because you're painting a picture of you are at the center of um, Myanmar. I mean, you're you're working with the highest level of politics. You're working on the ground and you're talking to all the people who, I, I presume you're talking to a lot of people who would ha- have their fingers on the pulse of, of the nation. And now I've heard the story that you've told me directly. And I've also heard, so for people who don't know, you are, I, I believe the sixth, I've lost count, <laughs> of hosts of the This Sustainable Life podcast. And we have a podcast host summit every month. Last month, you talked about, you just shared the story to that group. So how many times have you told the story? Is it a lot or just a few? Uh, yeah, a lot. Actually, first few months so after the recent like political developments in Myanmar, so that was our life, really. So explaining to everybody, our partners, our um, investors, uh, our financiers, friends, family, um, everybody, so regular updates on what's going on, what the situation is on the ground and how we are affected. So I don't know how many times I have told the story, but it must have Do you been. mind sharing again? Uh, sure, yeah, I can uh, briefly share. the. Uh, for those who uh, may not have seen the news, there was a coup on February 1st uh, in Myanmar. It was rather unexpected and it caught most of us off guard, really. And after the coup, some civil opposition built up in the country. Uh, there were large-scale demonstrations and there was a civil disobedience movement started. Civil servants stopped working. So at one count, at some point, people were talking about 70, 75 percent of country's civil servants not working. So that really caused a significant kind of paralysis in the country. And then there was a heavy crackdown on the protests, which also really changed the entire uh, feel and entire outlook of the country uh, within that period. So the country has been like generally peaceful, although the history of it is complicated. And then there are several ethnic armies and low level of conflict on the borders has been going on for decades. Uh, so this was just like taking it to another level. So the streets, the big cities, the streets, it became a really complicated place <laughs> because demonstration on the, on the one hand and the crackdown on the other hand and very heavy crackdown with um, like heavy armory and like live ammunition uh, crackdown on civil protests. It really uh, changed the mood. And then internet was cut off for a while. So first it was for a few hours during the day uh, or it was on and off. And later it escalated. So at some point, the Wi-Fi as well as mobile data was completely cut off. So it was only fiber optic uh, that was working and only limited hours during the day. And recently uh, things have changed. So they started opening the internet back again, but they're whitelisting the sites that they think, I mean, that the current government thinks is um, okay to use, uh, but several sites are still uh, not accessible. Can you take us back to the evening of January 31st? And the, I, I presume you went to sleep. Did people, was there rumbling? And then the morning of February 1st, what was it like in your personal experience? It was really shocking. So on January 31st, what was the experience? I can't remember. I We might have had a get together with some friends and this was really not real on the agenda. So I, I'm keeping one of the uh, magazines from January 
28. So that's a weekly magazine. Um, the most popular is like the Economist of Myanmar. So the cover story was completely like something different. So it wasn't even um, like remotely related. So it was just like deep in the like that particular issue. So it was talking about generals like not being happy about the recent election results, like etc. But the expectation was that everything will go ahead and eventually they will find like some level of compromise. So really nobody was expecting um, this to happen. And of course, so when we woke up on February 1st, that it was shocking. So And the internet was <laughs> cut off. So we learned about the coup, the fact that all the civilian leaders were um, arrested. So they, were they arrested at like 8 a.m. or before you woke up at like? No, it must have been like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Uh-huh. And the news came out around like 5. And so I learned about it like 5.36. And then by 7, all um, electricity, so not electricity, sorry, um, internet um, and phone lines were cut off uh, for a few hours. So yeah, basically, so I live with my boyfriend. So we just like sat down, drank tea and contemplated life for a few hours. So just to like, just to try to digest what just happened and the potential consequences. And that happened at that the the capital city, which is like this constructed city that doesn't have a lot of population there. So you're in where you were in Rangoon. So yeah, so I was in Yangon. Yangon. Yeah, so I was in Yangon. No gunshots. No no tanks in the street. No gunshots for a uh, for a few hours, like for a few days. Actually, it was very quiet. I think it was a few days of like complete shock that nobody was able to process like what just happened. And the protest started maybe a few, like maybe a few days or a week later. So like until that period, we were just like just trying to understand what what happened and what the potential consequences might be. Then, and then things started changing. So the opposition started protesting and the military started cracking down. Yeah, pretty much. And it escalated. So um, to a level that, that nobody was expecting. And unfortunately, nowadays, the opposition is also changing its approach. So there has been several blasts in the city, which, um, although nobody claimed responsibility, it is like it is thought that it's actually the opposition. So now they're using different methods. You're talking about now, like May. Yeah, so I'm talking about now. So back to February, it was dangerous in the street. I mean, were there times when you would not go outside or and did you fear for your safety? Yeah, I would say, I mean, although um, foreigners generally were not like particularly considered a threat, threat at that point, like, of course, like some of the actions are a bit arbitrary. So I, I did, I did have the fear. So if I am out like in the dark or like when the streets are quiet, so you, you never know what might happen. Yeah. And then there was a curfew at 8 p.m. Uh, so yeah, I, I do remember. So coming from supermarket. Uh, or I can't remember, like coming from like some place, and it's like, oh, it's like seven fifty-seven, so we gotta rush. Um, so three minutes, so you don't wanna be out uh, when the uh, curfew starts. So you never know what might happen. Uh, also, I used to live very close to a university compound, which is like beautiful inside, like trees and very like nice walking paths, etc. So I used to walk there um, like almost every day, morning, evening, um, in the dark. Uh, so with like no problem at all. So I remember like a few days after the coup or maybe a month after the coup. So we were walking 
uh, in the university compound and it was eerily quiet. So even if it wasn't dark yet, uh, so we are feeling a bit uneasy. So we just like went back. So as a foreigner, you felt relatively safe. What's happening with the population? Um, I think it's quite difficult for them as well. Like at the end of the day, people have to get on with their lives. So they have to go to, I don't know, supermarket. They have to buy stuff. They have to eat. Uh, so like everyone goes out. But there were uh, several incidences. Uh, for example, there were like roadblocks, checkpoints, which never happened before. And then some arbitrary like checking of phones, like whether you have any posts on your um, social media, etc. cetera. Uh, so of course our um, like local um, colleagues and friends like felt it a bit uh, more severely. And then like there were some random incidences as well. So for example, uh, one day um, a bank worker, a manager, I think a local lady, so she was just driving home from work. So a driver was driving her back to work. She was on the passenger seat. And then apparently the driver didn't hear or didn't see um, a stop sign from the uh, checkpoints, uh, the people in the checkpoint, and they just like opened fire and she passed away, like uh, just unsuspecting um, civilian, just like, I guess, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. That sounds tragic. And is it, was that, you said it was isolated. So it was largely unviolent otherwise, or... When the protests happened, how did the military respond? Uh, no, it wasn't isolated, really. So at the beginning, the protests were happening in um, like central locations. And then it started like rather festive. So people were coming out with their dogs, like with their kids, um, like creative expressions of protest. But yeah, after a few weeks, I guess like the patients went out and the crackdown started. And with the crackdown, people also, um, the protesters also started using, um, I guess, different approaches. Like instead of gathering in big centers, it became more like smaller groups um, in residential areas, like mob protests, uh, flash mob protests. And then there was crackdown all around. So um, it wasn't very peaceful. Is that something you could describe? Is that something you saw? Well, I have seen a lot of like footage that was happening, like even uh, near uh, where I live, uh, which was about like a few hundred meters from one of the um, original gathering points. And then at night, so I would also hear like I guess like fire, like people opening fire outside, so from uh, where I live. And then yeah, so there were several like footages, like instances where people were just like shut dead on the streets and like really violent crackdowns. I think it was a systematic um, approach to, I guess, make sure the protest movement doesn't build more momentum. Taking out leaders, is that what the systematic nature is? Yeah, so taking out leaders, but it wasn't, um, so most of the leaders uh, were already arrested, I guess, at the beginning. So this is, uh, protests were driven by mostly the next generation, I would say, the younger generation, which wasn't that politically involved previously. Yeah, the I guess like wherever um, they can identify taking out the leaders, like arresting them or detaining them. So yeah, that's one approach. And like otherwise, I guess the crackdown, violent crackdown generally is to probably deter people from coming out and like, creating like more fear within the community that they don't they don't go out and protest. I suppose you expected that you would 
leave if it got too bad, which you did, but you couldn't have known that you definitely could. And then you're also working with a lot of people who this is their home. There's nowhere for them to go. Did you know that you, you would be able to leave and how was leaving? And what was it like talking to people who can't leave and this is their home? Yeah, it wasn't that obvious. It's not only uh, because of cool, there's also COVID-related complications. Uh, so the travel was already uh, fairly difficult because of COVID. So several countries where I can travel without any visa within the region. So they basically closed borders during COVID. So it wasn't very obvious that um, it's so easy uh, to move. Also, flights were fairly restricted. Again, because of COVID, the country was uh, mostly isolated from the um, international travel. And there were only relief flights. And the relief flights are going to countries like, for example, Singapore is one of the nearest countries. But Singapore does not accept anybody unless you have a permanent residency or citizenship. So you can't just go as a tourist. Uh, you can't just get on a flight and go to Singapore as a tourist. So yeah, it was fairly complicated identifying how, where, and like in what way to leave. And also it requires an additional infrastructure. For example, um, so I, I flew to Thailand, so which required like several steps for visa. And then like after visa, you have to go through um, several steps for the medical checkup and the COVID test before you can come. And of course, all of these require a level of infrastructure within the country, which wasn't clear whether those services would be readily available, for example, COVID tests. Yeah, so it wasn't very easy. Uh, so it took a lot of effort and planning from my side. And people um, around our circles, I think it's generally a very... So I work especially with um, younger people. So most of my team... Uh, they are in their late 20s or like they're in their 20s, early 30s. And it's really their future that's being affected. Uh, so they were going to most likely be the next generation of leaders. So now most of them are looking to leave the country one way or another. Yeah, which is quite sad. The people who can't leave, I think there's a bit of acceptance, resentment, grief. It's, I guess it's all mixed. What about in February, March, were they, I mean, it probably wasn't acceptance then. I mean, were people, were they fearing for their lives? Were their relatives affected? Do you know? Yeah. So several people I know, um, so their friends, uh, relatives were affected. So I think everybody was in a state of, I would say, shock, anger, grief. So all these like mixed feelings. And of course, like they fear. So what might happen? Because some of these are not so easy to like, for example, if it was only happening at the protest areas, then they might say, okay, so if I don't go to protest area, then I'm safe. So it wasn't like that. Of course, everybody was concerned about their safety. So for elder generation, it's about their kids' safety, their future, what might happen. So it's a really tragic and sad situation. And all the while COVID is happening. Um, yeah, I, I, I forgot. It's like you're talking about it and you're like, and there's a COVID. I was like, oh yeah. And there's a global pandemic going on at the same time. Now the situation is the military. It's hard to imagine. That it seems like, did they see a route to just winning? And now what's if, because it doesn't sound like, now it sounds like everyone's locked in and there's no way out. They're, both sides are stuck without being able to. What was the military's original objective, if you could tell? And what has it led to now? Well, I think it's a complicated political history. Um, so military has always been part of the 
political scene for decades. Uh, so that was a period of transition or maybe experiment per se. Um, so although uh, the country was moving towards democracy, for example, they maintained 25% of the seats in the cabinet. So by constitution, so they uh, whether they get the votes or not, so they maintain 25% um, of the seats and they maintain control of several ministries um, that are critical for national security. I guess it was the new power sharing structure was not really giving them a prominent involvement in the politics. And the latest election back in November, so I guess general expectation was that the civilian party was going to lose some popularity because they have been in power for five years and the pace of reform wasn't as fast as it could have been. So they get a lot of criticism uh, for not really moving fast enough. So they thought maybe that the civilian party might lose some level of popularity, but they did not. In fact, they got uh, more votes compared to five years ago. So I guess that put things in a bit of a shaky ground for the political dynamics. So the military was thinking we're we're about to lose more power. Yeah, probably. And it's also not quite clear where the path might go if the civilian leadership like gets the full grip of the political scene. So I guess initially they were probably expecting a level of different level of power share sharing arrangement. I, I suspect that it wasn't they weren't expecting things to get to this level. Maybe they underestimated the level of opposition that uh, these events might trigger. And you're speaking there of the, the military was not expecting that level of support from the population for, for the civilian government. Yeah, things to escalate this much also so after the coup. And when you look at the region, um, actually coup is not very uncommon, I would say. So in several um, countries in Southeast Asia, so there's similar... Not quite the same, but different, similar, but different arrangements. Uh, so even in Thailand, um, so where I am right now, so seven years ago, there was a coup, but it was a bit different. Uh, the dynamic was a bit different. And I guess it never escalated to this level of violence. It ended up with a different level of power share um, arrangement between uh, the military supported party and the civilian party. So maybe they were expecting um, something like that, but it didn't, I guess, the support of civilian party. So they underestimated the support for civilian party generally. So now the the military is controlling the checkpoints and things. Now, I mean, now in May, the military is controlling things. The opposition is not going away. Does anyone see any route to peace and stability? Uh, Unfortunately, it's not very clear um, how... The next steps might be the opposition. Um, I mean, the opposition leaders, the civilian party, most of the leaders are in jail uh, at the moment. So there's not much presence from the civilian party. The ones who are not in jail, they're on the run. So it's really a new generation of grassroots leaders that we are seeing. And unfortunately, um, there's a trend for radicalization of these new generation of leaders. So I personally don't really know how things might go because the methods of the opposition is also changing. So as I mentioned, uh, so there has been blasts in the cities. So there are talks of increasing guerrilla type attacks and action, guerrilla type war. The conflict might potentially prolong and I don't know how it will 
turn out. And the opposition party, those who are not in jail, those who are on the run, uh, there's also shadow government right now. So those opposition leaders and the opposition MPs that are on the run, so they form the shadow government and they are trying to build a federal army involving ethnic minority rebel groups. So yeah, there's a possibility for escalation of conflict. Although I don't really um, see a full-fledged civil war as a possibility. I mean, that's my personal opinion, but uh, there might be some guerrilla type attacks and escalation of conflict and targeted attacks uh, going forward. Targeting the military checkpoints, things like that? Not necessarily checkpoints. So for example, the recent blasts have been targeting like township offices, for example, administrative offices who support military. So technically the target is civilian, but supporting government, uh, supporting military government. And yeah, unfortunately there were like several like more violent videos uh, circulating online, like for example, killing of police officers by the opposition forces, like etc. Uh, so it's really not not good. And did the military originally think we'll seize power, it'll, it'll just work out and we'll we'll just have power like we used to and then people will fall in line? The original announcements was basically saying, so there will be elections again. It's just that, um, so they argued that the election, there was election fraud and the election committee did not take their complaint seriously. So they were going to do an like, election inspection and investigation. And then later, like one year or two years later, um, there was going to be a new election. So what everybody was expecting at that point that some changes in constitution and potentially... This is January? This is... December, January? Yeah, December, January. Well, when the coup first happened, so February 1st, the first announcement uh, was that the, the complaints that they have raised about the election irregularities were not taken seriously by the election committee. And with that, they had to take this action and take over the power. So they were going to do... a election investigation. So we, everybody was expecting a change in the constitution that would probably give more power to the military uh, within the government. But I think they were still expecting that there will be some semi-civilian government. So there, will, there was probably going to be an election, but I don't know how free that election would have been or how they would have managed the opposition party uh, whether they would have limited some of the leaders from running for the office again. So basically, I guess the expectation was that some level of semi-civilian uh, government to continue, but with a new power share arrangement. I mean, it sounds like wishful thinking on their part that people would just be like, okay, we'll just take, we'll, we'll forget the election. We'll believe them that that there were election irregularities and actually they really did get a lot more votes and we'll just go back to work. And now people aren't accepting that. They're radicalized and it's getting farther from now the military can't back down. The opposition's not going to back down. Is that about right? And then and that leaves most of the population or someone like you, the business is still in business. People still want to build the structures that they wanted to build and they need the investment that they're looking to invest in. And so you're trying to do business unsure of what's going to happen next. Yeah, of course, it affected the business environment quite significantly. It's not that easy for anyone in business to continue business as usual, really. So several investments 
Well, first of all, the funding sources, like mostly from outside the country. And given the current situation with the sanctions and everything, so most likely all these funding sources are not going to be coming forward. And several international investors were also, so they also faced public pressure to either exit or pause investments in Myanmar. So it's basically not easy to continue doing business. I do hope that things will get to a, at least a new level of normal because it's also extremely sad to see the impact of these developments on the population. I mean, generally, the, the country is not very wealthy to begin with. A majority of the population, so they really depend on their wages and salaries. And so there were news in the local media, uh, for example, several garment factories in industrial zones, so they had to shut down for a while because of these developments. And the factory workers, because they have no savings and no safety net, like some of the factory workers, so they had to like go to, like they had to prostitute themselves basically to be able to get food to their family, which is like terrible, really. And then like even with that, so all they make is like $3, like $5 a day to feed their family. So that's like really extremely tragic. How's food getting into the city? Is is that is the military forcing that to happen? Is there, you talked about the strawberries too <laughs> yeah. uh, before this conversation. How are people eating? I think the logistics is getting to a new level of normal. So there was a major disruption at the beginning when these events first unfolded. Most of the food is grown in different parts, not in the commercial center or just around the commercial center, but in different uh, regions in the country. So the logistic network is quite important for food or supplies to be able to come in and out. So that was disrupted for a while, which was big concern. So if there was any food shortage, I think it would have been very tragic. So right now, there is still limitations, but some level of normalcy seems to um, have been restored, uh, restored in the like on the road. So at least, so, so the logistics, like food logistics, is like getting back to a new normal. So not as efficient as before, but at least they can still get food in and out of the city. How's the military paying for this? Are they selling drugs? Are they uh, selling weapons? Are they? Oh, you talked about what they're doing with the trees. Yeah. So the country is a very um, resource-rich place. So Myanmar has a lot of natural resources. And some of the main sources of income is natural resources. So there's natural gas, there is precious stones like jade, uh, ruby, etc. So that's one of the largest sources of income. And they control uh, most of these trades. So there was a lot of pressure on uh, oil and gas companies. So there's actually several international oil and gas companies active and who have joint ventures with military-linked entities in Myanmar. Uh, so there was growing international pressure on these oil and gas companies. So actually they just announced today, so Chevron and Total, that they're not going to distribute dividends for a while to anyone involved in the business, so including themselves, so not only the government shareholder. So the military is going to seize the mines for the, the gems and for the natural gas, and they're going to take all the profits for themselves, and they're going to run. If that's the case, then the people who would normally get that money aren't going to get that money. Yeah, so they already have those assets. So for example, gems, like etc. So uh, most of these uh, resources are controlled by the 
military-linked entities. So that's a like, key resource. So they've always been well-funded. Yeah. And on top of it, so this oil and gas uh, reserves, for example, so they're managed by like usually joint ventures with companies, international companies who have the technical expertise and the government entities are usually a military enterprise. So they um, jointly manage these operations and the military enterprise uh, get royalties and fees that are linked to those operations. But on top of it, so I had mentioned earlier, uh, so there was increasing reports of illegal logging, like basically clearing of the forest to get hard like access to hard currency and cash, basically, which is a big challenge at the moment in the country. Although the reports are quite patchy uh, from like more rural parts of the country, so there were pictures and reports of increasing clearance of forests, like very old forests and like illegal logging and increasing timber trade over border. Do you know if there's pressure internationally, whoever's buying the timber, whoever's buying the natural gas to stop buying it from them to change the situation? Or is that... Yeah, it's quite difficult. I'm guessing most of this trade is not... Like, it might just be over-the-border trade and it may not be illegal in the first place. So if it's not legal, like, um, which means it's already going against the... Like, what they're supposed to be doing, so extra pressure. So I don't know how much of an impact that would make. I'm going back to a big picture, sustainability-wise. Places where there's conflict, people feel there's... And then the morning of February 1st, or sorry, the evening of January 31st, you couldn't have predicted this. In fact, the major magazine, the economist of the area, didn't see it coming. Once it happened, it's almost impossible to stop. And when it happens, there's the tragic loss of human life, as well as the change to human society and culture. And then you said it's resource rich, but these are non-sustainable. These are one-time inheritances that, I mean, a forest in principle can grow back, but an old growth forest takes a long time to grow back. And the people who do it feel justified in doing it. I presume like, yes, it's important. Yeah. Trees, trees, trees are important. Sure, sure. But this is important right now. And sure, in the United States, we probably feel a lot more secure and stable. Myanmar, in comparison, hasn't had as long a history of a stable democracy, but the culture there goes way farther back. I mean, people lived there a lot longer than people lived here. And so from a different perspective, there's a much longer history of civilization there than here. And even not the United States, there's plenty of places in the world where this sort of thing can happen and can spread quickly, totally unprepared. And once it happens, there's no stopping it. I think people feel like our protection from these things is much greater than it is, and that our stability is much deeper than it is. It's great as long as we have it, but then if it's gone, it's not like we can just kind of go back, like press rewind. We can get stuck in that forever. And and I'm listening to this and thinking, as an American, we had on January 6th, a it's debatable whether you call it an attempted coup or an insurrection, but it was something like that. And it didn't get anywhere near the support it, didn't, it wasn't coming from the military. It was coming from some people, you know, like a relatively small number of people, but with tens of millions of people who voted for the guy that they were supporting. It's easy to say that wouldn't happen here, but it's, I think it would have been easy to say that wouldn't happen here on January 31st. Like if someone had said to you, do you think there's a chance of a coup on January 31st? Can you, do you have a sense of what you might have estimated? Well, of course, like we were talking about it. So what's the probability? Nobody thought uh, that was a probability. So yeah, I wouldn't have given it like very high chance. 
And yeah, I guess like your point about the unexpected events and the escalation and potential consequences is quite right. I mean, it's a different situation, but I guess the unexpected events, like big, unexpected, game-changing events are by nature unexpected. So you don't see them coming, uh, but once it happens, the consequences are very severe. And I guess like the whole experience uh, within this period. So one thing I have seen at firsthand is the dependency on the, I guess, like food, water, energy. And I think nowadays, like almost internet, our dependency on to be able to function uh, on a daily basis or how um, reliant we are on these things and how fragile the overall systems, uh, support systems that provide us those things that we take for granted. So food network, the logistics, it can be like potentially broken and like you can, um, I guess, live on your stored food for a while. But um, so if there is no food, if there's food shortage, that is a major, major problem. So you can have the most advanced buildings, but if you don't have food, if you are not getting your food uh, from the sources, from the supply chains that you expect, it's going to be a major crisis. Like similarly, water, like, yeah, so if you don't have water, it's really, like, you can't really function. You're t- now that you're talking systems terminology and you're saying it's fragile, I think, to me, fragility is a sign of, it is a result of efficiency. That you make systems more and more efficient, they become more and more fragile, or I would say brittle. And I think people generally, this is my impression, but from having studied, worked with systems a lot, is that people like efficiency. People like, well, if if we can do something with less, if we can waste less water and waste less food here and there, that's good. We should do that. We want less waste. But you end up, when things get more and more and more efficient, then you get, if anything goes down in one place, everything goes down everywhere. And the flip side to efficiency, most people I think would think is is inefficient, but the flip side to efficiency would be resilience. And if everything becomes dependent on everything, you lose resilience. That doesn't mean have waste everywhere, but it it means simply pursuing efficiency without also making sure resilience makes things brittle. Yeah, that's true. And also it goes to so efficiency also goes to centralized versus decentralized uh, management of systems. So we were talking earlier about the water resources, for example. So there were incidences but as a black way of penalizing people in certain neighborhoods. So uh, people poison water wells, uh, water sources in some neighborhoods. So the only way those people were able to survive was that there are multiple, there were multiple sources of water and then their neighborhood, like their neighbors had access to like other types of water and then they shared water until the system was able to clear itself once the uh, wells were poisoned. Yeah, so that's, um, I guess, inefficiency. So technically, if you have like one central system, like efficient, so maybe it might potentially improve like some of the cost and structure and efficiency. But I guess you lose a little bit of like resiliency in the process. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. 
Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. This so makes me think of, I can't help but translating this into the U.S. is uh, we have fewer and fewer sources of water. We're getting irrigating more and more places. And if we drain aquifers, or if we melt the glaciers, then that's a source that goes away. Then we go to aquifers and we can get that sort. If that source goes away, now we're stuck. If, if we live with what nature provides, the, the, what's sustainable, then that would mean we can't grow and would mean that we're not using every resource we can, but it means that it's more, we're more resilient. It also makes me think of something like nuclear. And everyone says, well, it doesn't emit carbon dioxide. So that's a big plus. But if we make a lot of, if we don't make that many nuclear reactors, say they're really effective, say there is no pollution and say we can figure out what to do about um, the radioactive waste that comes out of it and say that we don't have to worry about terrorism, then there's still only a few nuclear reactors. It's not very well distributed, centralized, as you say. If they, if someone has control over them, terrorists, or if there's centralized power wants to get more power, then they can really get a chokehold over everything. Distributed solar would be the opposite of that. Needing less power. Also, also, if you produce a lot of power all over the place, so that there aren't, say, put nuclear reactors all over the place. Now, suddenly you have power all over the place. Historically, humans have always, when energy is available, we grow to use up all the energy until it's scarce again. I was just reading that the first brownouts in the States, I think we're in like the 40s from air conditioning. At that point, I don't know how long power grids were around. They're not you know, a couple decades old. And now our power grids can produce, I don't know, 10, 100 times more than they could at that time. So much, much more power, but we still have brownouts because every time we supply more power, people take it for granted. And then we just build more air conditioners and everything's air conditioned now. And so we get brownouts again. If we put nuclear power everywhere, it seems to me that we would then use the power. Historically, as far as I can tell, all historical records show or patterns show that we would then reach the limits of that. And then we'd again have all these chokeholds again unless we choose to live below the limits, well below the limits. So sorry, this is me now getting into sustainability from your situation. Perhaps the most sensitive place would be to look at the human cost in the here and now. And I've looked at it, I'm tending to look in the long term what we can learn from this. It seems like the more we become dependent on chokeholds, the more efficient and therefore brittle we get the closer we approach to that situation. If we stay well below limits, then there's more abundance per person and we don't have to, we become protected from situations like this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was thinking two things as you were explaining this, um, Josh. So one is like on nuclear, for example, by solving the power supply problem, for example, and CO2 emissions by intervening systems at that one point, actually, sometimes we are creating other problems. So we have seen the uh, Fukushima issue recently, the company who is operating Fukushima. So now they are working on clearing the plant and uh, you might have seen it. Uh, so they are going to discharge like somewhat clean water, but not entirely clean water. So somewhat radioactive contaminated water to ocean apparently in two years because they clean as much as they can clean, but they won't be able to clean to the level that there is nothing left. So there's also the life cycle, the entire life cycle 
aspect of that, right? So we don't know what will happen. So if they actually um, go ahead and discharge that water to ocean, so what kind of impact the nuclear wastewater is going to have on the oceans. And the second point is, like to your point on living below the limits. So I guess it, it goes down to the point of what is our concept of good life. So whether our good life is consuming everything we want as much as we want, and at the time we want to consume it, or we define our good life based on our values, based on different aspects of our nature and cultivating like different aspects of our, our personality and having a deeper satisfaction from life and getting the quality of life with lesser and lesser material resources, or whether we are going to seek better life or good life with higher and higher consumption of material resources. So I think that's really what it comes down to it. I guess we have gone down the more material consumption route for quite extended periods of time. But hopefully all these recent developments is going to be a wake-up call uh, for us to look at life in a more holistic way and cultivate other aspects and cultivate a deeper satisfaction from life based on everyone's values, based on everyone's reflection on life and their own personal values rather than just material consumption. Is that your goal in, in starting up? The sustainable life in my head, it's the sustainable life finance, but I'm not exactly sure. But is that your goal? Is to is not just to hope that we adopt these things, but to take a leadership role and bring that about in your communities? Yes, uh, I haven't really decided what is going to be the title exactly. Uh, so it's partially finance, and then there's also the aspect on economics. So I want to talk to business community, finance community, as well as people in economics, which I think have a big impact on the assumptions, the um, systems that we built in our society today. So yeah, I want to uh, go deeper on, on these subjects. And yes, I guess it's maybe bringing out these assumptions to the surface, uh, to be able to have more meaningful conversation around like whether these assumptions are actually really delivering for us. So whether the uh, pursuit of endless material consumption is really bringing satisfaction, joy, and meaning to one's life. I can't wait to listen to your podcast. <laughs> Thanks. I only know the first couple episodes are going to be me because we've <laughs> recorded them. Yeah. And I imagine what it would be like to talk to the people that I anticipate you're going to talk to, but I haven't talked to them yet and I don't have access the access that you do. And if you reach a point where you're leading them to speak and and consider things that they don't have to, but if they do, they'll think differently and they'll think, I mean, I can't wait to hear how those conversations go. Are you thinking of, of whom you might bring on or what types of people you might bring on? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. Um, I'm still figuring out the logistics of it. We have recorded these episodes, so I'm, I'm yet to finalize all the logistics details and publish them. But I have been thinking about who to invite, uh, what topics to discuss, and how to really get to the conversation about values rather than uh, what exactly one is doing. So sustainability or like green finance, green investments, um, it's a big discussion. It's a big topic in business today. There's a growing awareness. But 
it is still not quite at the level that that I want to go or the depth I want to go. So I want to be able to really talk to personal values of the individuals I'm talking to. So not necessarily um, just what they're doing as a corporate or what they're doing as part of their role uh, within the institutions that they're representing, but also what what their perception of good life is and how these activities are fitting into their own values. I feel like the general conversation there is how can we be more efficient? And they're not realizing the systemic effects. They're just like, oh, well, let's take this. This step seems like the right step. And they're not seeing where it leads. I mean, I just had this conversation with this guy and he was just like, look, the US, our total emissions are going down. Problem solved. And the numbers didn't, he didn't do the math. He didn't figure out like, it's, it's not going to go down to zero. It's not going to go down anywhere near the timescale that we're thinking. It's not just, you can ease off. And he himself was not changing anything. So this is a guy who's um, uh, a national level investing person. I, I don't know exactly his position, but a position vaguely like yours, Ireland, not, not Myanmar. And he hadn't acted, he hadn't had any personal sense of, of any change whatsoever. But once I started talking about his own personal thing, he started thinking, oh, this does affect me in ways that I hadn't thought. And suddenly it started changing. And I think that I'm really interested to hear not just now I'm thinking not just the conversations, but how you affect the conversation, perhaps at a global level. Yeah, I'm curious to see how it goes as well. I guess it's going to be a learning process for me. But yeah, for me too. So getting into these conversations with people uh, who are uh, probably leaders in the industry or in the institutions um, and how they see problems and whether they're looking at only the surface level action or these really resonate uh, with their deeper values. And if they act on them, not just become aware of them. And how, if they not just act on them themselves, but if they bring, if they lead their organizations to act on these values. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, so I was thinking about it. So uh, you, we both have gone to business school. So I find it interesting that like throughout the entire um, education process, uh, this higher education, top institutions, so there was never a conversation about, like, for example, reflecting on one's values and building life accordingly and then making conscious decisions. So I feel that we have built so much technical uh, know-how in our fields and how uh, the entire education system is designed. But some of the most fundamental things that most people have to face on a daily basis are some of the um, um, like ethical questions, like some of the trade-offs that they have to make on a daily basis. There's really no framework unless uh, you get it from your family or like somehow you were aware of it and personally cultivated those skills. So I feel that there is not enough support system to encourage one to reflect on one's own values and make conscious decisions and act on them. So, yeah, I hope it becomes a bit more mainstream. We may have to start a new business school. I mean, what happens when economics is based on a tree is worth more cut down than standing? You know, and not just trees, but lots of things like that. Yeah. Now, we're well over an hour, and I wanted to get to talk about your values and, and what the environment means to you. And maybe we'll have to leave that for another episode. Will you come back and do another episode? Sure. And now I have this backlog because I've been writing my book. And so there's going to be a race between, I believe that by the time this people hear this conversation, yours will have been up 
we I can't we can't say what the link is now, mm. but I'll put the link in the notes. Okay. Uh, and hopefully you'll have a couple episodes up so that people can jump over and listen to you with global finance and economics leaders. Sounds good. And and before that, me. <laughs> uh, anything to close with or anything you want to say to the listeners before wrapping up this time? Nothing. It was a good discussion. Okay. And I feel like, yeah, I, I hope that this was a cliffhanger because how do we incorporate values into business education, into education in general? How do we implement them in business, in life, and not just simply accept that, I don't know, there's a valuelessness to our economic system and our financial systems that doesn't seem to be, if, if we don't decide deliberately to do something about it, I think it's pretty clear where it's going to go. And the environmental situation is not exactly what it caused or what's happening in Myanmar, but it's, it feels to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but very closely related. Yeah, I agree. I think it's the fundamental assumption that we make about human nature. Uh, so there's this concept of economic men, right? So we are all rational decision makers, maximize our utility at any given time. That's the basis of the entire economic policy, as well as uh, political thinking. And that also reflects itself in, um, I guess, like consumption, consumerism, like I said, all these areas. It does not really look into the human nature with, with its entire complexity and where people get value and meaning in their lives. And it doesn't really encourage the uh, reflection, like self-reflection to identify what really brings people joy and happiness and meaning. So yeah, I wish that was a bit more mainstream. I think that would have made difference and that would have changed our assumptions that are the basis of a lot of things in the society today. That's going to be the cliffhanger we leave the listeners with <laughs> to begin next time on what happens when we do bring those things to the conversation. Sounds good. Nevjan, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.